What a wonderful thought. And grace is greater than I've said, no matter what they are. In our series from the Old Testament, for the last two weeks we have looked at the book of Jeremiah. And you recall in that book that God had appointed Jeremiah to be a prophet to Israel. His responsibility was to warn them of judgment. That uh, they were to repent and return to God. However, as he preached the message, rather than responding in that fashion, they rejected the message and imprisoned the messenger. And that brings us to the book of Lamentations. The word Lamentations means wailing, great mourning, weeping. So this is not a pleasant, feel-good book. In fact, it is dealing with the consequences of their rejection of God's grace and God's mercy. In the Hebrew Bible, there is no title for this book. It is simply called How. Because chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4 begin with the word How, which is a common first word beginning for a dirge, and this is a dirge. That's what Lamentations is. The Septuagint refers to it as the dirges of Jeremiah. Jerome, in his Latin translation, called it Lamentations of Jeremiah the prophet. Now, the author is left anonymous. We are not told in the book who the author is. However, it is generally accepted that the author is Jeremiah. In Davis' Dictionary of the Bible, it says in the Septuagint, the following statement is prefixed to the book. And it came to pass after Israel was led into captivity and Jerusalem laid waste that Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented this lamentation over Jerusalem. So although the book does not mention the author, it is generally accepted that Jeremiah is the one who wrote the book. There's almost universal agreement concerning the date of this book. It was written in 587 B.C. Now at that time, Nebuchadnezzar had led the Babylonian army into Jerusalem to devastate Jerusalem and destroy the temple of Solomon. Zedekiah, the king, rebelled against Babylon. He wanted to restore the independence of Jerusalem. But after 18 months, the city of Jerusalem had been retaken, looted, and destroyed. The inhabitants were put to death, enslaved, exiled, or some of them fled to Egypt. Zedekiah's sons were killed before his eyes. Zedekiah was blinded. And then he was taken to Babylon where he spent the rest of his life in a Babylonian prison. Now that brings us to our text today, Lamentations chapter 1, beginning in verse number 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. She weeps bitterly in the night and her tears are on her cheek. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile under affliction. And under harsh servitude, she dwells among the nations, but she has found no rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in the midst of distress. 
The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feast. All her gates are desolate, her priests are groaning, her virgins are afflicted, and she herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her masters, her enemies prosper, for the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary, and all her majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes have become like bucks, they have found no pasture, and they have fled without strength before the pursuer. In the days of her affliction and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious things that were from the days of old when her people fell into the hands of the adversary. No one helped her. The adversary saw her. They mocked at her ruin. Jerusalem sinned greatly. Therefore, she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. Jeremiah begins this lament by referring to a lonely city in verse 1, how lonely sits the city. And what he does as he begins here is to depict Jerusalem as she had been before and as she was after. You recall Ronald Reagan referring to the United States as being a shiny, a shining city sitting on a hill. Well, Jerusalem had been that. She was that shining city on a hill. The Bible says that she was full of people. She was a populated city. One commentator wrote, she was full of her own people that replenished her and full of the people of other nations that resorted to her with whom she had both profitable commerce and pleasant converse. So as we consider Jerusalem prior to this time, she was a city that was full of people. The people were there. The Bible referred to her as being a great city. Another commentator said she had been great among the nations, greatly loved by some and greatly feared by others, and greatly observed and obeyed by both. So whenever we consider Jerusalem before this time, she was full of people. She was a great city, and she was a princess among the world's cities. Matthew Henry wrote, Some made her presents and others paid her taxes, so that she was really princess among the provinces, and every chief bowed to hers. Now that's the way that she was. Before all of this happened, they had disobeyed the Lord. They had rejected the message of God. And now then they go into captivity. But what she was before was that her city was full of people. She was a great city. She was a princess among the nation's cities. What she became, verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. She has become like a widow who was once great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a forced laborer. So now the Bible says that she is like a widow. Matthew Henry wrote her king that was or should have been as a husband to her is cut off and gone. Her God has departed from her and has given her a bill of divorce. She is emptied of her children, is solitary and sorrowful as a widow. 
So we see her then, the Bible describing her as being like a widow. It says this princess is now a forced laborer. Her people are taken captive by Babylon, and now they are enslaved to Babylon. They are serving Babylon. Folks, it is my belief that those who call themselves the people of God will serve Him, or they will serve another. We will either serve God, or we will serve another. They were forced laborers. Now, what did she do? Look at verse 2. She weeps bitterly in the night. And her tears are on her cheek. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. The Bible says that she weeps. Well, we understand that. She weeps. In fact, the psalmist describes their captivity in Babylon in Psalm 137. And in verse 1 of that psalm, he wrote, By the rivers of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Here is this city that had been full of people. They had been a great city. They were princes among the cities, and now they are in captivity as forced laborers. And the Bible says that as they remembered what they had been, they wept. They were without comfort. There was no joy. There was no comfort in their captivity. In Psalm 137, verse number 4, it says, How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So as we look then at the people of, of Israel, the people of Jerusalem, who had rejected the grace of God, the mercy of God, they had despised the message that they had heard. Now then they are in captivity, and the Bible says that they are weeping as a widow without comfort. They had traveled a road of mourning in verse number 4. The roads of Zion are in mourning because no one comes to the appointed feast. All her gates are desolate, her priests are groaning, her virgins are afflicted, and she herself is bitter. It was a trail of tears for them. They had been taken into captivity, and now the Bible says that they mourn. One commentator said, It used to be a pleasant diversion to see people continually passing and repassing in the highway that led to the temple. But now you may stand there long enough and see nobody stir, for none come to the solemn feast. I read that, and I thought of my own experience growing up. I grew up in a small town. Maybe it was different there. But I remember those Sunday mornings when it was time for church that the streets would be filled with people going to church. And today as years have gone by on Sunday morning when some are going to church, I see the streets are filled with people going to ball practice. And I think how things have changed. Well, that's what the commentator is saying here. We remember those days when, when the streets would be filled with worshipers going to worship God, but not now. He said, their feasts are unattended. The gates are desolate there in verse 4. He says, no one comes to the appointed feast. That, that speaks of the religious gatherings of the people of God. He said, the feasts are unattended. They, they, they no longer go. He goes on there in verse number 4 and says, her gates are desolate. The gates were the places of government, but the government now has no power, has no authority. 
So he says they're, they're not going to the places of worship. He says the gates, the, the government is without authority. He goes on in that verse and says that her priests are groaning. The men of God were groaning because of what they had seen as the people went a, away from the Lord and the consequence that came. You know, I think we need more preachers today who are groaning and weeping because of the condition of the country. I think when we understand what is happening, and folks, it's so imperative that we do understand what is happening. The strides that we are taking away from God. The rejection of the foundation on which this country was built. And it's been going on for decades. I'm reading a book now called uh, God is Back. It's a very interesting book because it traces where we are now back to the 1920s and so forth. But it's a very interesting book to just sort of see the chronicle as to how things have happened and how we have gone away from God. And our hearts should be broken. And certainly that should be true of the priests, the preachers. He says that their priests are groaning and the virgins are afflicted. What he is thinking of here, I think, is that back during those times when God was their God, there was a procession of the people going to the temple to worship. And it was a joyous occasion. As they went along, there was the music and there was great joy. And the young girls were dancing and playing the tambourines. The psalmist describes it in Psalm 68, verse 25. He says, The singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. So as he remembers back at that time and and the joy of the procession as the people went up to worship God. But he says, but now they are afflicted. The joy is gone, and now they are afflicted. And he says that they have become bitter. It was a road of bitterness because their religion was profaned. In verse 10, the adversary has stretched out his hand over all her precious things. She has seen the nations enter her sanctuary, the ones whom thou didst command that they should not enter into thy congregation. In other words, the heathen had taken over their religion not to worship God but to plunder. He goes on and says their religion is mocked in verse number 7b. The adversary saw her. They mocked at her ruin. You know, I guess that is something that has always been with us. Those people who are not believers mock those who are. And the unbelievers, the enemy, the adversary, mock them for their religious convictions and traditions. Juvenal, one of the heathen poets, ridiculed the Jews for their observance of the Sabbath. He wrote, They keep their Sabbaths to their cost. For thus one day in seven is lost. Those silly Jews, they take off on the Sabbath to worship God and they are losing a day of commerce. Folks, those people who really don't know the Lord and the Lord's provision don't understand our commitment to Him. You give up, Sunday's the only day I have off. That's the day that I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go to... You're going to give a tenth of your income to the church? Shoot, I'm not going to give anything. That doesn't make any sense. See, that's, that's, it's always been that way. They, they mock those things that the Scripture teaches us. So it was a road of mourning. The feasts were unattended. The priests groaned and the people were bitter. Then Jerusalem remembers. Look at verse 7. In the days of her affliction and homelessness... 
Jerusalem remembers all her precious things. Isn't it sad that for most of us, or many of us, that we only regard something as being precious after we no longer have it, after we've lost it? They have lost it, and now then they remember it as being precious. Their adversaries had become their masters in verse 5. Her adversaries have become her masters. Now then, the ungodly are the rulers over the people of God. I also thought about that as I was writing this. I look at our own country and see in so many ways how the adversaries have now become the rulers. And there are many examples that I could give you, but one that is most prominent today is the Establishment Clause in the Constitution that to separate church and state. Well, when that was given, it was for the purpose of protecting the church from the state, but today it has changed and the adversaries have interpreted it that the state is to be protected from any religious involvement. So we have removed God from the public square. He says in verse number 5 that the enemies prosper. The enemies of God always prosper in such an environment. But look on in verse number 5. It says, Her little ones have gone away as captives before the adversary. They, they lost their children to slavery. And folks, one of the sad things to me is that in so many ways we are losing our children today. Parents, I, I pray that you might understand that. That if we do not instill in our children the Word of God, that if we don't give to them a spiritual, godly foundation, we are losing our children to the world today. And in many respects, we as well-intentioned parents are contributing to it. They lost their children. Their majesty had departed in verse number 6. All her majesty has departed from the daughter of Zion. Her princes have become like bucks. They have found no pasture and they have fled without strength before the pursuer. Matthew Henry wrote, Those that had been not only a distinguished but a dignified people on whom God had put honor and to whom all their neighbors had paid respect are now brought into contempt. Their majesty is gone. Again, thinking of our own country. Ladies and gentlemen, as a result of our departure from God and trying to build a society without God, we've lost our majesty. We talk about exceptionalism. I believe the exceptionalism of the United States is our relationship to God. It's not that we are unusual people. It's not that we have all of the resources in our land. There are other, there are other uh, countries that have more natural resources than we. The thing that has made us exceptional is because of our commitment to God. And so when we went away from God, when we began to move away from God, then we lost that majesty. And now those who at one time admired us lecture us. Isn't that interesting? Their memories were stirred because sin stains the soul. In verse 9, her uncleanness was in her skirts. You see, folks, sin always, always brings misery. Now, we can be forgiven. God's grace is greater than our sin. 
But sin always brings misery. You'll see there in verse number 2, she weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemy. Sin always brings misery. We look at King David and his involvement with Bathsheba and so forth, but then read the rest of the story of his life and what a tragic story it is. In my devotional time, I was just reading about his son Absalom and how he had tried to take the kingdom from his father and his death and how his father David was brokenhearted, all those things. It was a tragedy because sin always brings misery. My friend, sin entices us with the excitement of it and the pleasure of it and all of those things, but I can assure you that it always has a bitter ending. It is always bitter. Bring shame in verse number 8. Jerusalem sinned greatly, therefore she's become an unclean thing. All who honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Even she herself groans and turns away. You know, sin always brings shame. It brings shame to the individual when we get caught up in sin. It brings shame to the family. It brings shame to the church. I have, I have prayed for years and very sincerely, I think, Lord, don't ever let me embarrass your kingdom, your church. Please keep me from sin. I pray for our staff on a regular basis. I pray for you. And I ask the Lord to keep you from sin. Because, see, if, if as a staff member, as a leader in this church, if you and I fall into sin, then we bring shame upon the church that we have served. And so you pray, Lord, keep us from sin because it brings shame. It brings curses because it hinders our prayer. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 8 says, Even when I cry out and call for help, He shuts out my prayers. Ladies and gentlemen, we should not expect our prayers to be powerful if our lives are filled with sin. It hinders the blessings of God. Lamentations 2.12, they say to their mothers, where's grain and wine as they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city? It, it hinders our fellowship. In chapter 2, verse number 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. When we disobey the Lord, we turn away from God, we reject His Word, then the Lord becomes an enemy to us. It brings destruction in chapter 2, verse number 11. My eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people when little ones and infants faint. It brings death in chapter 2, verse 21. On the ground in the streets lie young and old. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword and so forth. Ultimately, sin always brings death. That's what James said in James chapter 1, verse 15. When lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So what you see here is Jerusalem remembering. They remember that that was precious that they had lost. Their, their relationship to God, the blessings of God, they had lost. They remember that. But then, even in the depths of suffering, we see the mercy of God. I, I have people to ask me quite often anymore, it seems... Do you believe that there is hope for America? Where we are today, do you believe there's hope for America? Folks, my answer to that is yes. 
As long as God is on His throne and if we are willing to turn to God, absolutely. Absolutely. We, all we need is a good revival. God needs to move in our hearts and in our homes and bring revival to this country. We see His loving kindness in chapter 3. Look at verse number 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have Therefore, I have hope. God's love and kindness never gives out, nor does it quit. God is so gracious. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, I love the Old Testament, it has such wonderful stories. And that's the reason I've been doing this series is because I want you to get in the Old Testament and just learn some of the stories. But one of my favorite is the story of of Elijah when he is hiding from Ahab. And uh, so the Lord sent him to the brook Cherith. And the Bible says in 1 Kings 17, 4, It shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you there. So God said, I'm going to provide for you there. And she sent him down to the brook. But then the brook dried up. So the supply is gone. But God in His mercy didn't stop. He says, okay, now I want you to go down to Zarephath. I have a widow down there who's going to minister to you. The Bible says, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Isn't that just like God? I mean, when a door is closed, He opens a window. But when we are dependent upon the Lord, when we are looking to the Lord, when we are walking with the Lord, folks, He provides. His mercy is so wonderful. He is a compassionate God. Therefore, we are hopeful. In chapter 3, verse 22, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is Thy faithfulness. Because of His mercy, His grace, and His compassion, we have hope. Why? Because it's the Lord's loving kindnesses. It's the Lord's. The Lord's. And you'll notice the word loving kindnesses is plural. We were singing something, you know, 10,000, you know, all these blessings that God has. God has so many blessings for you. It's plural. And he says that they never fail. And they are fresh, they are new. And they are consistent every morning. Do you get up every morning, every morning, expecting the blessings of God? I'm not talking about a car, new Cadillac in your garage or any of that stuff. I'm talking about those blessings that are real. The blessings of God on your life. See, that's exactly what He promises here. He says, the Lord's loving kindnesses never fail. They are new every morning. Every morning. Let me conclude. Israel sinned against God and suffered the consequences We also sin and we also suffer. But Lamentations is a reminder to me of God's grace and deliverance if we turn to Him. Some of you are familiar with the Welch revival that spread. People were saved. It was just a great moving of the Spirit of the Lord. You might not know how it began. 
there was a youth rally. A group of young people got together. And in that rally, they were sharing testimony of God. One after another, they stood and they talked about God and His faithfulness. There was one young girl who stood to give her testimony. And she was overcome by the Spirit, and all she could say was, Oh, I love Jesus. I do love Jesus. And somehow, out of that youth meeting, the Great Welsh Revival was born. Oh, I do love Jesus. My friend, do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Because if you do, you could be the catalyst for great awakening. And we need that. Our Father, I pray that you might speak to our hearts, that we might see your mercy, your love, but your justice. And Lord, we might see our desperate need of you. Father, today during this time of invitation, may we be obedient to you not rejecting the message, but being obedient to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. In just a moment we're going to stand. The choir's going to sing a hymn of invitation. My friend, if you're here without Jesus, would you commit your life to him today? Would you? If you're looking for a church home, our doors are open to you. God's spoken to your heart. Just be obedient to him. Stand with me, please. As we stand together, the choir sings, You come, I'll greet you as you do.